Our first reading is from Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 5 to 13. It can be found on page 776 in the Church Bibles, Jeremiah 17. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who depends on flesh for his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. He will be like a bush in the wastelands. He will not see prosperity when it comes. He will dwell in the parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the streams. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. Like a partridge that hatches eggs it did not lay, is the man who gains riches by unjust means. When his life is half gone, they will desert him, and in the end he will prove to be a fool. A glorious throne, exalted from the beginning, is the place of of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust, because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, on page 1235 of the Pew Bibles. Page 1235. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. I think we need to sit down after that. Do please be seated. <laughs> Great singing, though. Shall we just have a prayer before we open up the Bible? Heavenly Father, we pray that this letter written so long ago would have something to say to each one of us today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's great to see you all, and welcome back to a couple of our mission partners who've uh, returned from 
foreign fields. It's great to see you. I'm going to start with a riddle which somebody told me the other day. See if you can work it out. A man comes into work and he finds a big brown envelope in his in tray and he opens it and he looks at its content and he turns to his colleague and he says, I'm as good as dead. Outwardly, he appears very healthy. He's not a criminal. He doesn't work for MI6 or the SAS. So what was in that envelope? It was an x-ray. It was his x-ray. And he was an oncologist. And one look at his own x-ray told him that he was as good as dead. Now we're back in the book of Revelation today. We've been working our way through these seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And we're at this church in Sardis, chapter 3. If you'd like to follow it, it's page 1235. And you'll see there on the map that uh, we're in Asia Minor, uh, modern-day Turkey, and Sardis right in the middle. My apologies if you've come this morning expecting a carol service. I'm afraid you're a week late for that, but there'll be lots of carols on uh, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, so come back for that. But we are in the season of Advent preparing for the coming of Jesus. Not just his first coming as a baby in Bethlehem, but his second coming as King of Glory, to which our passage alludes. So this is more of an Advent sermon than a Christmas sermon. And as we read this letter to the church in Sardis, Jesus is basically sending them an x-ray of their spiritual condition. Jesus is not conned by outward appearances. Rather, he's looking to their heart. Now, in the Gospels, Jesus likens himself to a doctor. And rather, as a doctor might have his own medical certificates framed, hanging on the wall, to prove his credentials. So Jesus introduces himself, chapter 3, verse 1, by saying, these are the words of him, that is Jesus, who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And if you're a note taker, you might like to note that chapter 5, verse 6 of Revelation tells us that the seven spirits are the seven eyes of Jesus So, rather like a lot of mothers, he has eyes in the back of his head. He sees everything. And then chapter 1, verse 20, tells us that the seven stars are the seven angels or messengers. And verse 1 of our passage says that he's holding them. In other words, Jesus is in control. He is the sovereign Lord of the church. So, in verse 1, when Jesus says, I know your deeds... We know that he knows. And the fact that Jesus knows the church inside out and through and through is both reassuring and challenging. Reassuring that Jesus is the Lord of the church and he holds the church in his hands. And it's also challenging that Jesus' x-ray eyes can see everything. And that's what we're focusing on today. And in this letter to Sardis, Jesus is rather like a a good doctor. He gives us first the diagnosis. Secondly, he prescribes the treatment. And third, he gives us the prognosis. So come with me 
and let's take a seat in Dr. Jesus's consulting room alongside the church in Sardis. Because remember, all these churches are addressed uh, to everybody. Every, every letter ends with he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is both a specific letter to the church in Sardis in the first century and a general letter to all churches, including us here today. First, Jesus' diagnosis. Now, Sardis had a reputation for being a confident city. It was built in a brilliant location at the top of a ridge of mountains, so it was very easy to defend. It was also on great trade routes, so it was commercially successful, and it was powerful. It was the capital of the ancient kingdom of Lydia. And the Sardians boasted that they would never fall, but they fell twice. First, to Empress Cyrus of Persia, and then secondly to Alexander the Great. And on both occasions, they were infiltrated by night because they left no guards, because they thought they were impregnable. And so the city fell. Sardis was too confident, too secure, too smug. And just as with the city, so with the church. Dr. Jesus's x-ray eyes see behind this facade. Look at the second half of verse 1. Jesus says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, unlike the other churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, there's nothing in this letter that Jesus commends because the church is dead or as good as dead. There's no shortage of activity. Perhaps the only thing that's good about them is their reputation. No doubt they had a full program of Sunday services and Sunday school for kids and a summer fete, a Christmas fair, building project to restore the tower and a successful midweek program and the treasurer was happy with the state of the finances, all that kind of thing, and the visitor would come into the church and say, this is a marvelous church. You have a reputation of being alive. But Jesus says, you're about to die, and some parts are dead already. And he's like this doctor, breaking bad news to his patient. In verse 2, he says, I've not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. In the sight of men, you're fine. But Jesus says, you're dead or dying. And unlike other churches who are condemned for what they do, the church in Sardis is condemned for what is not being done. Their deeds are incomplete. And if we want to know what a complete church looks like, then we just look back at the last church we looked at in Thyatira, chapter 2, verse 19, which was marked by love, faith, service and perseverance and in Sardis none of these is commended they've got this full program going on big reputation but they're just going through the motions people are just turning up they have no love for people no active service the Scots have a phrase for a certain kind of building which is Queen Anne in front with a Mary Ann behind. And uh, in fact, you see quite a few of these around here. 
wonderful stucco front, go round the back, and it's just red brick, and rather dirty red brick too. And Dr. Jesus' diagnosis is pretty devastating. Looks great on the outside, but not so good round the back. That's the diagnosis, and it's rather bleak, but it's, it's going to get better. First, so we come to the second point, Jesus' treatment. And Jesus gives five urgent imperatives. Wake up, strengthen what remains, remember, obey, and repent. That's the treatment. And just as in his earthly ministry, Jesus healed the dying and raised the dead, so today, wonderfully, Jesus can raise moribund churches and bring life to dead churches. And what Jesus did physically, he can do spiritually. But of course, the patient needs to cooperate. The patient needs to take the tablets. So these five imperatives are commands for the church to follow. And the first is to wake up. If our Christian life is simply a formality, or perhaps we're stuck in a rut, or we're going through the motions, perhaps we just come along to church because we got into a sort of habit of doing it, but nothing really happens in here, there's no desire to grow, then perhaps this is a word for us today. Let's examine ourselves, perhaps look at our own spiritual x-rays or ask God to show us our own spiritual x-ray. Does Jesus look at our lives and see that they're incomplete? Does Jesus see sinful attitudes with no desire to change or patterns of behavior that don't honor Jesus Christ and no attempt to address them? If that's the case, the call is to wake up. Second course of action, strengthen what remains. And the picture here is of fanning dying embers back to life or rather allowing God's Holy Spirit to breathe his life into our lives. But either way, the call here is to cultivate the inner life, not to be content with the outward show. Third course of action, remember what you have received and heard, chapter 3, verse 3. In other words, remember the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the Christian gospel. Keep going back to the basics. Keep going to the cross where Jesus died for our sins. Keep going back to the empty tomb where Jesus rose to bring us victory over evil and death. Remember that the gospel is not just the way into the Christian life, but the way on in the Christian life. Remembering in the Bible is really important. Think of some of Jesus' last recorded words before his crucifixion. As he broke bread and poured out wine with his disciples, he said, do this in remembrance of me. It's not very complicated. Just remember my life given for you. And whenever we break bread and drink wine, that's what we're doing. Remember what you have received and heard. Now, we men, we often get grief for not remembering anniversaries. And the point is not that we just remember them, 
but we remember them so we can act on them. So we go and buy the flowers or make the card or whatever it is. We remember so that we might do something. And biblical remembering is not just calling old truths to mind and say, oh yeah, that's right, Jesus died and rose again for me. But it's acting on them. In the Old Testament, God is constantly reminding the Israelites, remember that you were slaves in Egypt, but the Lord your God rescued you with mighty hand and outstretched arm. And then he goes on to say, so love the Lord your God with all your heart. Or love your neighbor as yourself. Or don't neglect the widow or the orphan. Or don't forget to feed the hungry. Remember, remembering should lead to action. And this leads on to the fourth imperative, obey. Don't just remember, live it out. Make Jesus' priorities our own priorities. Now, obedience requires a lot of self-control and discipline, as illustrated here. Self-control and discipline are not popular virtues, but they're essential. They're essential treatment from the prescription pad of Dr. Jesus. Fifth course of action is to repent. And in the Bible, of course, repent means a change of mind leading to a change of direction or behavior. And this, again, requires a conscious, deliberate act of the will to live differently, to live for Christ. So here we have five very simple imperatives. There's nothing radical or new or complicated about this. This is basic Christianity to which the church in Sardis needs to return. And so do we, if we're in danger of living in the past or simply going through formalities or relying on a reputation. The doctor prescribes the treatment, but the patient needs to take the medicine. So finally, our third point, Jesus' prognosis which contains both a a warning and an encouragement. Second half of chapter 3, there's a warning. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. If we ignore Dr. Jesus' diagnosis and fail to take his treatment, then it'll be disastrous, like a thief in the night, just as Cyrus and Alexander the Great So the church will be caught napping too. Jesus is coming back. That's what Advent is all about. Will he find us ready? It's amazing the amount of Jesus' teaching and his parables that refer directly to his second coming. I can't think of Jesus ever talking about his birth and telling them to remember the stable in Bethlehem. But constantly, the parable of the sheep and the goats... Uh, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, the parable of the talents, the parable of the tenants in the vineyard, quite apart from his direct teaching, which usually ends up with the, with the punchline, so I say to you, keep watch. So there's uh, the warning. But let's finish by rejoicing in Jesus' encouragement to those who hear the diagnosis and take the treatment for those who do wake up and fan the faith into flame 
remembering what they've heard, obeying it, and daily denying self and living for Christ. Four lovely encouragements, and we finish with these fantastic promises. First, we will walk with Jesus. Look at verse 4. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me. Now, in the Bible, walking with God is a picture of the ultimate intimacy. Remember Genesis chapter 3? God comes looking for Adam, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Adam, where are you? God longs to walk with us. We read of Noah and Enoch walking with God as a kind of sign of their closeness to God. That's the first encouragement. We will walk with God. Second, we will be dressed in white, verse 5. White in the Bible is, of course, a picture of purity, having been washed clean by the blood of Jesus, clothed with a robe of righteousness. Jesus will see us as righteous, as we're welcomed. Third, we will have our names written in the book of life indelibly. Verse 5, I will never blot out his name from the book of life. The Bible tells us that God has a, a book, I imagine a sort of metaphorical book, a kind of register in which the names of his people are recorded. And the promise here is that if we overcome the, Satan, if we overcome the world, if we overcome our own sin, then our names are safely recorded in the book. And the Greek sentence here has a double negative for, for emphasis. So you could translate it like this. I will never, ever, by any possible means, ever blot their names out of my book. Ever. Something like that. There's a few extras, but that's the gist of it. Now, when we die, our names are removed from all sorts of books and registers. The telephone book. The electoral register. The inland revenue register. The church database, your school alumni list, the NHS waiting list. But the one book that the overcomer can never have their name removed from is God's book of life. There's a great hymn. I'm hoping that we might get to sing it one day. I don't think we sing it here much, but it's called How Firm a Foundation. And the final verse goes like this. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, he will not, he cannot desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, he'll never, no never, no never forsake. In fact, the fourth wonderful promise is not just that Jesus won't forsake us, but that there is a wonderful party waiting to kick off in heaven. Do you see the end of chapter 5? Uh, sorry, end of verse 5. Not only will he never block our names out of the book of life, but he will acknowledge his name, our names, before his Father and his angels. Jesus will not be ashamed of us on the day of judgment. Rather, he'll welcome us 
Welcome home, my friend. Come in, join the party. And let me introduce you, my father, the angels. They've been waiting for you. And God says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Sometimes the doctor's words are rather uncomfortable to hear, but he says them because he cares. And in Jesus' case, because he loves us. He loves us all the way to the cross so that he can say to us, welcome home. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you love the church with all our impurities and shortcomings. We thank you that you don't give up on us. Thank you that you persevered for us all the way to the cross. And we pray too that we would hear your diagnosis, that we'd hear your voice calling us to wake up, strengthen what remains, remember what we've heard, obey it and repent. May we hear your voice and act on it. And may we be faithful followers of you to the end of our lives. And we ask this for your glory. Amen.